0: Hey everyone! You're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens.
1: And I'm Raymond Docapel.
0: Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing the genre-bending 2021 Marvel TV series WandaVision. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators.
1: There are no new words under the sun, there are no new notes I have left to hop, there are no new rhymes yet to be sung, there are no new chords that strings haven't strung.
0: So before we get into the main event today, discussing WandaVision, we are going to answer for the first time ever in our first ever listener question segment a listener's question so uh this question is from Jenny who says just listened to your guys's episode on 12 rules for life I've never read or listened to any JBP but something you said made me curious about JBP and Buddhism as you were talking about how in 12 rules he posits that suffering is part of being and that we must face suffering head on to be full humans This reminded me of the foundational tenets of Buddhism as far as I understand it. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on JBP approaching life with a Buddhist viewpoint, or not necessarily. I wonder if he's one of those people who sees Buddhism and Christianity as symbiotic and cooperative. Can he have both viewpoints at the same time? Great question, Jenny. Thank you so much for submitting it. Uh, Raymond, what do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I think the term that you're talking about here is uh, syncretism which uh, is considered, I guess, from a Christian point of view as heretical, syncretism being the idea that all uh, religions are essentially saying the same thing or saying the the same truth. So like the elephant analogy, everyone's touching a different part of the elephant, but it's the same elephant, right? Um, And it seems that Jordan Peterson does do quite a lot of that too because he does talk a lot about Buddhism he talks about the story of the Buddha, and then he talks about you know the Egyptian god Marduk, and then he talks about Vishnu and Hinduism and Christianity, and he talks about all of these ancient stories, uh, all of them, from a psychological point of view. Interestingly, he also talks about the myth, or he would you know the story of evolution, as kind of a mythology, and that too is like fodder that he uses to underscore his point. Well, I don't want to uh, simply dismiss everything that he's saying as syncretist um, because there are things that Buddhism talks about that isn't necessarily in disagreement with Christianity, namely the claim that life is suffering. It's like, well, you start there. You start there and you say life is suffering. Buddhism has a different answer to that than Christianity does, and maybe Peterson doesn't really address that so much. But I think that what Peterson really wants to do is he's saying he's not trying to say, look, everyone needs to be a Christian. What he is saying is that, look, there are a lot of different cultures and traditions that are all saying the same thing. And in principle... A lot of those things are instantiated in Christian values, which is the foundation of the West. And so, maybe we should embrace Judeo-Christian values because of that. But he's using all of these other different perspectives to sort of supplement that. I don't know if he would necessarily assume that they are synonymous with each other, but symbiotic and cooperative may be a correct word. So... A great, a great uh, book for reading for you is The Life of Pi, which I wanted to do a whole episode about in answer to this question, but Sophie wouldn't let me.
0: <laughs> I did. I said no. It's not on the list anymore, right?
1: It was never on the list, but I wanted oh. to do it.
0: Okay. Well, yes, that's why it didn't happen. <laughs> um, thank you for your question, Jenny. If you, our listener, have questions for us, you can email us too or contact us on Instagram or... Shout into the void and we'll probably hear it because we'll if you be shout heard. loud
1: enough, we will we will inevitably hear it.
0: We, there's no way we can't. <laughs> uh, so speaking of uh, suffering and facing suffering head on to be a full human, uh, there's a character in Marvel who for a time uh, refuses to face suffering head on and instead creates her own version of reality to re- to avoid coping with the suffering of the real world. And I am, of course, talking about Wanda Maximoff in WandaVision.
1: Right. Who's the actress who plays her? Oh, Elizabeth Olsen, Olsen yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's really good.
0: She is. She's very good. Uh, WandaVision is really atypical for Marvel's normal sort of thing that they produce uh the sitcom format is completely new the idea of focusing primarily on a love story at least towards the uh, until the end uh is completely new we start in WandaVision uh, I think it's supposed to just be set three weeks after the events of Avengers Endgame so if you haven't seen anything before WandaVision if you haven't seen Endgame or the movies leading up to it you will be lost Spoilers. (laughs) Yes. So WandaVision starts in a sitcom world with Wanda and her husband, Vision. Vision is basically a, a robot who is hiding the fact that he is a robot. And she has powers where she can control things with her mind. And they're married. They're living in this very normal town called Westview, but they are not normal. And so they are hiding the fact that they are abnormal and they are trying to fit in and if you are familiar with the Marvel world leading up to this series, then you will know this should not be happening because Vision is dead. And uh, there's, there's no way for this to be happening. They didn't get married. Vision died. Um, something's off here. Something is wrong.
1: Well, a lot of things are wrong. And that's not the only question we have. The other question we have is why in the world are we watching a 70s sitcom like well, it, was, it wasn't actually starting in the 70s. It starts in the 50s. It's black yep. and white. It's black and white, and it's modeled after the Dick Van Dyke show. So that's not something that we're used to seeing in the Marvel Universe at all. So that's another thing that really sh- that really throws us into confusion. Yes. But I think is really fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, very, it's a new concept. It's pretty cool. Uh, we start in the sitcom world. Slowly, as the show goes on, we zoom out. And start to realize or reveal that what's happened is Wanda, um, driven by grief over the loss of, honestly, everyone in her life, but most lately the loss of Vision, uh, who she had fallen in love with. And so she has created her own reality that is this sitcom world, and she's populated it with a cast that's really real people who happen to live in this town called Westview. And she's sort of expanded her magic to create something that they call the hex around this town.
1: What, what are Wanda's powers? She's just, I mean, this is like superhero world, right? So what can she do?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a little unclear on it. It seems like basically she can move things with her mind. She can create things kind of out of thin air. At least she can in the, in the show. And then she can mess with people's thoughts. So she can sort of make them believe things or see things that aren't really there, which is sort of what I think it's called chaos magic technically. But that's what allows her to create this false reality that sort of traps people into following her script uh, for this Mm -hmm. show. Eventually, we find out that there is a a villainous character who is messing things up somehow. That's a thing that's happening. Uh, And then... That villain is eventually defeated by both Wanda and Vision together, and then the series ends with Wanda saying goodbye to Vision and, uh...
1: Accepting the fact that he's dead.
0: Accepting the fact that he's died, and closing down the hex, so destroying her false world and re-entering the real world.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And Sophie, you you said you weren't really satisfied with the ending.
0: Yes, I have some complaints about WandaVision. Um,
1: Yeah, what are those?
0: The couple of big complaints I think that I have is that first of all, I, I, I think the concept is very cool. Um, I love the idea of having a sitcom in a in the Marvel universe. I love the idea of focusing on a love story, uh, doing things that are kind of subverting the normal Marvel tropes. I'm all for that. But even just I was rewatching the early episodes to prep for this episode. And there are so many strange, random things that happen in the early episodes that actually really kind of have nothing to do with the plot. Like, in the first episode, they invite Vision's uh, co-workers over for dinner, and there are all these antics that are very normal 50s sitcom sort of things that that are happening, and then the husband of the couple that they've invited over for dinner uh, starts choking during dinner and it's this weird creepy scene where his wife keeps saying stop it but like smiling the whole time and it's like a little glitch in the script or something but there's no plot related reason for it it just kind of happens and it's just kind of spooky and then in the second episode it was
1: it's, it was way more interesting it it started out way more interesting than it ended and yes maybe, that's true <laughs> i'm going to make the marvel fans angry probably but 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 it was just I, I it didn't go it didn't go where I was hoping it would it would go, and yes. you know we've talked about that before. It's like a lot of movies that we've that we've watched have way more interesting setups than they have conclusions.
0: Right. The setup would be so good if the payoff were better, but the payoff is yeah. not that great. Also, the other huge complaint that I have is the fact that Wanda. So for for a show that clearly thematically is about Letting go of people or things that you have lost. That being the healthiest mechanism for coping with grief. Not holding on to them or creating a false reality. Just accepting the real world. The fact that Wanda letting go of her false reality and shutting down the hex actually isn't important to the plot at all. Like, she defeats the villain and does everything that she needs to do before she even shuts down the reality. Whereas why why not write the story in such a way that she has to shut down her reality in order to defeat the villain or something like that. Like there's no actual plot related reason for her to do that, which seems to me like a really big oversight.
1: Yeah, we we a good story is necessity driven and so the setup and that's what you were going back to the payoff. But really what ends up happening is once we zoom out and become part of the Mar- the typical Marvel cinematic universe and all the typical villains come in and what are the typical villains motivations they're just like every other Marvel villain they're the same person as the protagonist except bad and then they have a giant sky beam CGI fight and have their little battle and and that's and that's it that's that's the Marvel world and so that's what we've yep. come to expect so the Marvel storytellers can be very creative in trying to keep keep it fresh maybe in their style uh but it seems that 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 they they were accidentally good maybe and yeah and didn't go as far in their risk taking as maybe they could have but 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 here's but they say but there's there's always that's the thing about marvel though is that they always surprise you and it's like it's like what Gandalf said about hobbits you can learn all their ways in in a week in a month, but then after twelve years, they never stop surprising you. So. Yep. <laughs> uh, so there are some things that that they, that happen in this in this show that are that are really interesting.
0: I think that the biggest theme, probably, if we're just kind of pulling themes out of a hat, is the the elephant in the room for Wanda, which is the fact that she has constructed this reality and this this script this show as a response to all the people that she has lost so she's been coping with grief and loss her entire life and now vision the loss of vision is sort of the last straw (laughs) this is the thing that she just kind of can't handle and so she snaps and that's what leads to the the creation of this reality and the quote that uh, to my understanding, is the most famous quote from this show. I certainly heard this quote long before I actually saw the show. Uh, is, what is grief if not love persevering?
1: That's what, what Vision says to Wanda.
0: Yes. And I confess that that is a really good quote. Uh, and it definitely yeah, deserves... Yeah, okay.
1: Seriously, like, when I heard that, it, coming from a Marvel movie, I the immediate thing I said I was sitting there watching it with my sister it was... Who said that? I was like, <laughs> where did that come from? That must be like some other writer or something. Like they must be quoting some some poet or something. So I was like looking it up. I was like, they No, it's like this is an actual the Marvel writers, they wrote that line. That's a an original quote. line. And it's like, wow, that is deep. What is grief if not love persevering? It's like, oh
0: So I guess the first question is, what what does that even mean? How how would we break down what they're trying to say in the context of the story by having that particular character vision say that to Wanda.
1: Well, this happens actually a little bit later in the show when Wanda is beginning to accept the fact that her of her of her made-up reality, right? And she's very depressed in the wake of that. Mm-hmm. So, up till now, She's been very violent, actually, and almost to the point of being a, an actually villainous character, which is really interesting because it, it's her violence which becomes the main antagonistic force. Whereas the in, agne, antagonist, Agatha, she's not really the antagonist. I mean, you know, it's not where the interesting stuff is, mm-hmm. Um but it's like her violent hatred of just accepting reality. And that happens like, you know, very early on when she comes outside and and there's there there are people who are trying to break into the hex. And a guy in a hash mask, um, hash mask, hash mask suit, hazmat comes out, <laughs> hazmat suit comes out. And there's bees coming around him and he's actually a real person from the outside world who comes in. And Wanda says, no, rewind. We're back into the fantasy world. Cut to credits. Everything's happy, so that's what she's been doing up to this point. And then later on, she, that that all that the hex has been broken, and she's she's unbelievably depressed. And Vision is trying to cheer her up. And so what's happening right now is Wanda is actually having to face grief. And um, you think you would think, at least from Wanda's point of view, that she's doing this because she loves Vision so much. She loves Vision so much that she's willing to create this world for her, world for him, Mm -hmm. when really she's just loving herself and loving her own state of mind. And so when it comes to the fact where she has to confront the fact that that he's dead and deal with grief, then the answer, the answer which Vision, at least the made-up Vision, says to Wanda, which may be a member of her own consciousness telling her that, this is that if you really are a loving person, if you really do love, then you have to love through grief. That's the only means in which you can love. What do you think?
0: Yeah. No, I definitely think that's true. And actually that sort of reframes the way I was thinking about the quote, because the thing that didn't quite make sense about it to me is the fact that I was thinking about the story in the sense that Wanda's grief is what causes her to create the reality in the sense that the grief, she is working through her grief in the reality. Which I thought was weird because the statement that grief is love persevering is saying something positive about grief. But then grief is the the source of the problems, which is the false reality. But actually what you're saying is her her false reality is avoiding grief (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's refusing to encounter and work through that grief whereas living through that grief would be the actual way that she would show love which actually so that makes a lot more sense to me now (laughs) i don't know if i really put that together before
1: yeah it's a lot it's a lot to 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 put into perspective because vision is making an argument, it's a rhetorical question, right? And it's redefining what the definition of grief is. Because grief, we typically assume, is to suffer, right? And if we mm-hmm. look at the Latin, what's the Latin word for suffer? How do you say uh,
0: it? Pat- patior is I suffer, and then pati is right. to I didn't suffer. W- I
1: didn't want to pr- pronounce it wrong, but it's in the passive. It's mm-hmm. something that happens to you, right? And that's what we assume grief is. But persevering is the opposite of it. So there's a difference between endurance and perseverance. Endurance is taking it. Perseverance endurance is taking it and perseverance is taking it on. It's mm-hmm. an active role. You're fighting for something. So that challenges what we think about what grief is. And he says, what is grief if it is not love persevering? Mm. Saying... Why is it the fact that we feel grief at all? You know? It's like because if you if you're not living in the real world and you don't love, you don't feel grief. It's the only thing, only people who love who can feel grief. And that's an active thing. It's not a passive thing.
0: So this reminds me of the the article that I wrote for our blog the other day. I mentioned the fact that it, when you lose someone, especially if the way that you lost them was sort of messy and complicated, your instinct can be to remember them poorly, to remember that person in their worst light or at their worst moments, because that makes it easier on you. Because Mm -hmm. to remember this person at their best, to remember their best moments, would be to feel sadder because you have lost this person. And I think there's something about that that applies here. That grief, if grief is love persevering, then that requires love. (laughs) It requires that you continue to love this person whom you no longer have. And that that Mm -hmm. causes pain. And you could choose not to. You could choose not to continue to love this person. And then that would avoid your grief. But it would also avoid that love. Which the, the show seems to be saying is a good thing
1: i think that it's really interesting the way that they're they're telling this story because you know good storytellers they don't just say i'm dealing with loss right it's it's the way that they show that it's loss that that it is we're dealing with and the way that they do it is by by showing the world from her perspective right i think you 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 were writing down in our in our show notes today, talking about how she's going back to childhood, her childhood mm-hmm. movies, to cope with her loss.
0: She sort she goes back to something that she has a positive frame of reference for, uh, mm-hmm. and also that television shows for her at various points throughout her life are something that she associates with escaping from reality. So mm-hmm. the show isn't real it's better than reality and when something painful happens you laugh at it i think there's a scene where she's watching like something falls on someone or there's some sort of injury that happens Mm -hmm. and she mentions that like in a show you're not concerned about it because you know it's not real it didn't actually happen um and so that's easier Mm -hmm. than dealing with the real world and i think it's a little ironic that she says that about shows in her world like television shows as we sit here watching this show (laughs) and what does that say about us that we're being entertained by this fictional character's grief or or means of coping with loss like i see i don't know i don't know really what to make of that but it seems a little a little too close to home maybe a little meta
1: (laughs) there's there's so much meta and there's so much irony going on in this show um that but that's what but that's what's so interesting about it is that every single episode, first we start in the 1950s, and every successive episode is a new decade. So then it's the 50s, it's 60s, and it's 70s, and it's 80s, and every single episode is a parody or it's not necessarily a parody, but maybe even a celebration or a basically a direct copy and a very accurate copy of the sitcoms of that era. That, that you know what, that made me think of, of course, I could not avoid thinking about Marshall McLuhan and his book, The Medium is the Massage, which he published in Wait, 1967. Wait, did you say massage? I did say massage, yes.
0: What? <laughs> yes. You don't mean message, not the medium is the message?
1: So Marshall McLuhan was famous for saying the medium is the message, right? And We'll talk about what he meant by that, but when he published that when he published the book, there was a typesetter error. Oh no. Typesetter made an error calling it calling it the medium is the massage. And when McLuhan saw it, he exclaimed, Leave it alone. It's great and right on target. So (laughs) there are now four readings of the title of McLuhan's book. First message. Then Mess age, as in M-E-S-S, this room is a mess. Mess age, massage, and mass age. All of which, McLuhan would say, are correct. Wow. <laughs> so, he wanted to call it massage because that's exactly what the medium, particularly in his time, television, that was his argument. That's what it's doing to us. It's massaging the message into our brain through repetition and and the way that these messages tell us not only tell us what to think but actually dictate how we're going to think and consequently how we see the whole world itself so let me sh- let me explain what i mean when you're watching a movie a camera is the eye what does that mean the, that means the camera is you Right. It's like when you're in a dream world, it's like you're the camera. You see that in Inside Out, like they use the film medium to explain being in a dream. It's that's like so whenever you are watching a movie, it's not the same thing as reading a book where you're 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 reading things that are happening and then your imagination creates it. Right. That's a creative act. But you're not you're not. That's not the case. You're you're watching things happen. All right. So you're there sort of. And then the camera moves. What does that mean? It means that you move. And when and so in the real world, you, you can't just like zoom around and fly around, right, when you're when you're when you when you are watching something happen. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in a play. Right. I was talking about this with Lame as Rob, you know, with the with the, the modern musicals. Like when you're watching a stage musical, then you just sit there in one seat for the whole time the camera mm-hmm. doesn't go whoosh, 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 swishing around already so it's like the fact that the of the camera swishing around is actually telling you something about who you are that is you're a disembodied head who's able to just swoosh around um so there's something about I would like
0: we, to I would like to say that I love I love swishing around the world of lames rob yeah yeah
1: yeah okay okay yeah, fair enough fair enough okay but here's <laughs> here's what i'm saying is So you go back in the 1950s sitcom. The camera didn't move that much. They didn't have the technology to do that. All right. So so in that situation, you don't move, right?
0: And that's Mm -hmm. a certain
1: way of looking at the world. And then you get more freedoms, more freedoms to move around. But what's really interesting is the fact that we get to a certain point of level of sophistication of filmmaking, which we now accept as the legitimate way. So, back in the 1950s, that was kind of a fake, idealized way of looking at the world. And then we look at the more modern cinematic canons, the more modern cinematic medium, and we accept that as authoritative. Why? Well, it's because it's more recent. It's because we're in it. That's the age that we're living in. Mm -hmm. But McLuhan would say, well, why should we assume that's any more real than anything else, right? So... Like, here's another example: nutrition facts on a milk carton. It's like it's called nutrition facts. Why should you assume that it's either nutritious or facts? Well, it's because <laughs> it's in a it's in a box, and it, the font is an Arial type font, and it's not in Joker Man or Comic Sans, and it's black, and it's on white. And it's like <laughs> all of those things are important, because and that's why we accept it as authoritative. So here's what I'm trying to say about Wandavision, though, is that. It keeps on switching, and part of the point of this whole commentary is the fact that these are all framed views of reality, which are somehow dubious in their inherent truthfulness. And then we finally get, and all of those, like the original one, it's four by three aspect ratio, which is like the television screens, right? That's mm-hmm. what we used to have. We used to call that full screen for you Zoomers out there. That was a that was a phrase we used. Now... We only have, everything is only in widescreen now. And so once we get to the, to, to the fact where we realize this is, no, this is not a TV show, this is Wanda coping with her grief within the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then it changes again. It changes again from 4x3 to 16x9. The 16x9 aspect ratio is the common standard for the cinematic medium that, we're, that we watch now. And we immediately accept that, okay, now we're in the real world now, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, like you said, is that's that's ironic. Why should that be considered more real than any of the other mediums? So I have a quote here I'm going to read by uh, Marshall McLuhan.
0: Oh, no. This isn't in our show notes. I'm concerned.
1: (laughs) All media are extensions of some human faculty, psychic or physical. The wheel is an extension of the foot. The book is an extension of the eye. Clothing is an extension of the skin. Electric circuitry an extension of the central nervous system. Media, by altering the environment, evoke in us unique ratios of sense perceptions. The extension of any one sense alters the way we think and act, the way we perceive the world. When these ratios change, men change. And I can't, I'm limited by the medium that we're, the audio media that we're in. But if you look at this book, I don't, have <laughs> you read this book? No. Okay. This is like a really funny, fun book because the whole thing is made like a magazine. But it's, it's oh. supposed to be published as some sort of like an academic, an academic book. Right? And he's, you know, he's a, he's yeah. a pretty educated guy. So... It, it, it kind of breaks down the expectation that you should that you know an academic book should just be text, but that's part of his point. Mm-hmm. He says, look, the way you say things in a typeface with whether you use audio visual media or so on and so forth, that's part that's as much of the message as everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's something, I don't know if the Marvel writers are cognizant of, about this, but they' they're certainly aware of the kind of the, the state we're in culturally.
0: When we watch a show, like, I don't know, the Dick Van Dyke show, we, because we're here in 2022, are aware of the fact that this is something that was filmed in a time that is not ours, and the fact that it's in black and white, or the fact that people dress a little differently, or that they talk a little differently, or that the conventions are a little differently, is almost like we're watching people who are in a foreign country.
1: Right, the transatlantic accent, right? Yeah, The transatlantic acid, which never actually existed, but is used in, like, classic Hollywood films.
0: And it's like, we don't don't think that that reality is uh, fake in the sense that we don't think it never happened. But it's not a now thing. We immediately know this wasn't made now. This isn't Mm -hmm. in the real world in the sense that it isn't our world. We're firmly entrenched somewhere in the past at a point that can't be changed so the fact that we start WandaVision in a 50s sitcom immediately tells us something about what is the relationship of this world to the current world and to the past this is something that if it really happened happened long ago and these people Mm -hmm. are dead now (laughs) is really what it's Mm -hmm. saying Because Mm -hmm. if these people, if this really was made in the 50s, and obviously it's not, like we're suspending disbelief here. But if this show we're watching was made in the 50s, then these people can't, aren't alive anymore. (laughs) Or if they are, they're very, Mm -hmm. very old. Mm -hmm. So we immediately are being told something about the reality of this world just based on the time that it's being Mm -hmm. set in.
1: But like you said, and this kind of goes back, this goes all the way back to your what your initial your initial uh, uh, complaint about the show is that once we get into the quote-unquote real world, it it actually is not not even that satisfying, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just becomes kind of a by-the-numbers Marvel movie. Right. So, well, you know, that kind of begs the question, maybe there's a hex within the hex, and we need to get outside of the hex of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's where this... This, this this play this 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 show is actually headed in which case mm-hmm. the marvel they're ex- absolute geniuses you know
0: well i think we would be a little remiss maybe to talk about wandavision without talking about the truman show at all because oh yeah of course obviously this this show is following a little bit in the footsteps of the truman show because it would be difficult to write any any screenplay that involved alternate realities and not be a spiritual successor to The Truman Show. Um, or,
1: or, or Doctor Who, I guess, too, right?
0: Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Um, so with The Truman Show, it's about a man who grew up in a reality TV show. He just doesn't know it. So he was born. He's owned by this corporation, or I guess adopted by. He's the, technically the son of this corporation, but... Uh, And he's living in this world where there are all these hidden cameras around and they're all watching his life it's a 24-hour broadcast but he has no idea he doesn't know that everyone around him is an actor Uh, he doesn't know that he can never leave the town he lives in because there's literally nothing beyond it because it's a constructed set uh where the sky Mm -hmm. is just a dome and if you tried to fly in a rocket ship or something you would just hit the ceiling He doesn't know any of that. And then over the course of the movie, he slowly starts to realize that he's actually trapped in this world. And then the final scene is him opening the door and walking out into the real world. So I think one thing that's strikingly different maybe about WandaVision than the Truman Show is that in the Truman Show, the reality inside the the dome (laughs) inside the show is pretty clearly undesirable it might be a relatively comfortable life in the sense that it's all kind of curated for him but it doesn't he's not he doesn't seem super happy there (laughs) and he kind of realizes that there's something beyond and so him leaving uh is an act of triumph there's lots of really triumphant music when he leaves and everybody's cheering for him uh it's this big deal in the real world because there's something triumphant about the fact that he's leaving whereas in WandaVision, the world she creates, the scripted world, is actually the happy one. <laughs> and the world outside, the world that she is going back to at the end is kind of dark. <laughs> and she's gone through a lot. She's been through a lot of trauma. And
1: Well, the uh, well the difference is the difference is that Truman is a prisoner whereas Wanda is the prison guard.
0: Yeah. She's the one keeping people there. And when she goes back into the real world, like, there's no triumphant music. It's not... It's a victory, maybe, but it's not a victory that we cheer for because we know what she's going back to and what she's making the choice to do.
1: Well, it's actually more like... That it would be more like the Truman Show. Vision's story is more like the Truman Show than Wanda's because Vision is actually the victim of Wanda's own uh, uh fantasy creation. True. Uh, he, she's, He's the one bound to be with inside the little set movie set that she's made so wanda is more like the film director in in the truman show
0: that's true although that actually brings me back to one to one other complaint that i had which is the fact that vision isn't real in any way the fact that vision is literally a construct of her imagination takes away a little bit of the emotional impact of the ending for me (laughs) the fact that she's not taking life away from him in any sort of way like this isn't really him this is her talking to herself because she made yeah. him up it, it makes it a little bit a little bit harder to be emotionally invested in their goodbye scene
1: the, I, you know i don't think the marvel cinematic universe has ever really figured out what what vision is <laughs> um, they even had like the philosophical ship battle so when there was like the the the, the philosophical what is the philosophical ship i don't remember the formal title of it but the idea is if there's two ships and then you take out a plank in the ship and then you replace it with a new plank and then you do that for every single individual component of the ship is it still the same ship and Vision is actually, I've learned that in Philosophy 101, and Vision is actually asking that question to, like, a duplicate of himself yep. at, at some point <laughs> while they're having their giant space fight, which is just so funny because they're like, we don't really know what Vision is. <laughs> so yep. there's a little bit of, like, falling apart there that happens.
0: Yeah, yep.
1: There's, like, self-doubt, even, even in the real world of, like what exactly who's the reliable narrator here
0: yeah (laughs) we don't really know i think that brings us actually the fact that she makes vision up and kind of constructs him in her own head in order to create this reality around him uh what do we think about this concept of exerting control over someone you love even in your imagination and even presumably out of love or because of love uh does that negate the idea of what love is for example like do you love someone because in some sense because they have free will their freedom is one of the things that makes them lovable and if you take away that freedom is your love for that person really love what do we think about that about the exerting control and freedom and love and all that
1: I'm I'm going to hope that since you asked this question, you already have an answer to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shush, I want you to answer.
1: <laughs> ah. Okay. <laughs> well, the the interesting thing about WandaVision and the Truman Show is the fact that it it sort of speaks to us that we mm-hmm. find it very relatable shows. And what's interesting about it is both of those shows and a lot of movies in this similar vein always function on the premise that the world revolves around you in some way or another. It's the same thing with The Hunger Games Um, or any kind of young adult teen novel. Mm -hmm. It's like you discover that you're super important, that you're the special one, you're the chosen one, you're the center of the universe universe. Right. I think every single like young adult dystopian novel has something about being the chosen one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're somehow special. And I think that it's just so humorous, but it's also congenial to exactly the way we experience the world along the, all the time, especially in this kind of technological world. I mean, it's like I'm talking to you, but I'm also I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to this is I'm, I'm in Kent, Washington. You're in uh, uh, Michigan you know you're thousands of miles apart we're not even facing the same direction i'm talking to a digitized image of you so it's like are are am i talking to you or am i just talking to you to myself right t.s elliot said you can't tell the truth over the telephone which uh mm. throws into serious doubt our entire podcast <laughs> <laughs> but
0: we are truly unreliable narrators
1: <laughs> very truly very truly <laughs> oh so sad but Anyway, but you also look about, we do this too when when we like look at memes, right? Mm-hmm.
0: I've
1: been thinking, I think a lot about looking at memes, like the act of looking at memes. And you look at, you realize that, you know, memes on Instagram are all catered to like basically on what you click on and what you look at. So it's designed around you. And the memes itself are very self-absorbed. It's always like, you know, when you're waiting in, in line in the grocery store and somebody is you know a Karen is standing in front of you complaining and then it's got a picture of somebody's face going like right and you're like ah oh, so hashtag #relatable like this is my life it's always like annoyed this kind of irritate this irritation or annoyance at the rest of the world which just kind of feeds the the the, the meme the drive to watch memes because it kind of justifies and puts you on a pedestal over everyone else you can and so it feeds your narcissism. You can always be looking at memes and just sort of feel better than everyone else because it's always directed directly at you and your experience and why everyone else just kind of like is making your life hard. So, so, so when you, I, I promise, I'm trying. I'm go get back to your question because your question was about exerting control over people we love. In, in our imaginations does this negate the idea of what love is well yes, <laughs> yes that's the question answer to that question
0: I thought probably it would
1: <laughs> I mean because to live in the real world you to actually love another person then everything about this this kind of self-created, world or universe that we live in really has to really has to be thrown away right it's that's the reason why we tell people to you know if you are listening to me put your phone down right mm-hmm. engage in a relationship with me um and you know I've I, as a teacher I have this problem with like in person learning right um well not I don't have a problem I mean the person with rem- the problem with remote learning cuz you can't you can't learn it's not a class it's not the same thing it's a different message mm-hmm. when when we're when when, when we're, we're talking in this way and like you're kind of like nodding and responding to what i'm saying but you know i would probably come up with like a dozen other different things to say if we were actually in the same room together because there's so many other things to observe than what i can observe by this conglomeration of pixels that i'm looking at at the screen there's so many different mannerisms and, mannerisms and tones that are that are lost and that is actually seeing the real person. The real person changes all the time, right? The image doesn't change, but it's much more comfortable for us to live with the meme-focused universe where nobody changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much, you know, Wanda's Wanda's story, Wanda's experience is very much uh, like the, the the problems that we deal with as human beings of making up a story in our imaginations about who we think all of these people are, our families members are and, and just kind of like living, living the narration of that. And that's, I mean the, the objective world and the narrative world being in disjunction with one another. That's a really big theme of course that Jordan Peterson talks about, Yeah, which is, you know, existentialism is like, Okay, stop living by the ideology. The ide- ideology doesn't change. Like, tear that down and look at the changing person. So things are so much different, like when I'm in a classroom and I'm actually having a conversation with somebody. Like, I have to change my plans, my whole lesson plan, because somebody has a question um, or, or somebody doesn't understand things or, or their face is, like, twitching, you know, they're, 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 they're furrowing their brow. In a way that tells me that I've got to change directions. Mm hmm. You know, so it's, well, well, you know, to the much, as much as it is in my power, I think that's probably what love persevering is.
0: There's There's such a stark difference between loving a real person and loving the idea of a person or what you want a person to be and what you want to make them into. Um, in C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, the protagonist, Oral, she has an almost kind of romantic connection to a soldier who's a character who goes through the whole, uh, is there throughout the entire novel. And there's one point at which over time progressively, because she's become queen and she kind of has control and she's able to control him. And kind of make him be near her and make him do what she wants him to do. And she says at one point that uh, a love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love.
1: That's such a good quote.
0: Yes. Well, every single quote from Till We Have Faces is such a good quote. But, like, the fact that uh, it's it's her control that does that. That because she doesn't want him to have freedom... Because she doesn't want him to have freedom to spend time with... I think he's even... I think he's married at that point. She doesn't want him to be with his family. Like, his wife and his children. Because she has some kind of twisted love for him. Or she thinks she does. That that is not love persevering. (laughs) That that is her exerting her own control over him. And the fact that she doesn't want him to have freedom means that she doesn't love him. She loves something in her mind that she is calling by his name but it's not really him and that's true of the people in our lives as well that we if we really claim to love someone that means permitting them to be free
1: well c.s lewis is really kind of an apropos person to bring up in this case that story particularly but also his book a grief observed mm-hmm because that was his memoir of him writing in the wake of the death of his wife Joy, and he wrote till we have faces while his wife was still alive. But um, he definitely understood everything about these these issues um, far before it, uh, far before her death. But when her death happened, it became real, and it was definitely an example of love persevering i mean it's right there in the title but this there was just this perfect quote um that that i pulled up here from a grief observed he he says well okay let me back up he's he's he was talking about joy and about how uh uh, i one of the things that is so difficult for me to deal with now is the fact that because she's dead my memory of her is 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 stagnant it's frigid it's it's not changing which means that i i'm losing her because the fact that the the problem with her being dead is that the image of her mind will become less and less like her Mm -hmm. so i have to even give up that i have to even give up the image and memory of her and he says this all reality is iconoclastic the earthly beloved even in this life incessantly triumphs over your mere idea of her. And you want her to. You want her with all her resistances, all her faults, all her unexpectedness. That is, in her foursquare and independent reality. And this, not any image or memory, is what we are to love still, after she is dead.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> people with freedom change and memories don't which is actually circling back to, to wanda i think that's sort of the main problem with her creating a figment of vision in her mind is that the real vision is complicated and free and changing in a way that the vision in her mind is not and can never be so it's never going to be satisfying. She's never really going to be satisfied with this alternative reality that she just invented.
1: Right. And but then we zoom out and we're still not satisfied. At least Sophie isn't satisfied. Oh um,
0: yes, that's true.
1: <laughs> so but but no, but that's it, but that's it's interesting though because um what is the actual good of shutting down her world? Um is there a real sacrifice happening here?
0: No, and that's the problem, because, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but it would have been such a better ending if she, in order to uh, defeat Agnes or Agatha or whatever, in order to defeat the villain, what she has to do is not use better magic and have a big space battle. What she needs to do is shut down her world, because her world is what's feeding The magic of of this cancer this villain that's growing and that that's what she has to do that's what she has to do to win instead of yeah not
1: instead of instead of fighting her within the context of the world by the rules of the world that she's created
0: right because then when she closes down the world when she shuts down her false reality it's not a sacrifice for something else (laughs) Uh, it's an afterthought. It's something that she does like, oh yeah, I guess this might be a good idea now that I've learned my lesson. But what did she do to learn her lesson? Nothing taught her anything. Uh, her fake world made her powerful enough to defeat the villain that I guess she also created. But that's, you know, that's a different story. (laughs) So yeah, I think there's a lack of real, a choice, a character choice leading to an actual sacrifice happening. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out here. Uh, before we finish our discussion, Uh, I think we've made a lot of connections here that are sort of indirect connections to Christianity. But one thing that I wanted to point out is the fact that, obviously, the Marvel Universe is is able to say something about grief, and we've pointed out a lot of things that they say about grief that are true, uh, that are accurate representations of how we cope with loss and how we experience grief. Um, But that Wanda... It doesn't seem like she has great avenues for dealing with that grief in her world. Once she leaves her fake world, that is just sort of something she has to deal with now. She just has to live in the suffering of the real world. And the only hope we have is that that is love persevering. Uh, that that is somehow an expression of love, which we believe is a good thing, but maybe we don't understand why.
1: Yeah, and even in the Truman Show, it's like we never know what happens when Right, it gets out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. But for the Christian... Part of our hope when we experience grief is that when God became man in the form of Jesus, Jesus knew and knows human grief and that in the garden of Gethsemane and throughout his entire passion, he asked his father to take this cup from him because it was painful. He was experiencing something like human despair and of course despair is a vice so he he didn't actually despair but he got he got close he experienced yeah. events that could very well induce despair and he certainly experienced grief and then on the cross he said my god my god why have you forsaken me which is an impossible thing to say <laughs> for right the god Especially incarnate god yes yeah that is hope for the christian when we experience grief that whatever grief we experience we cannot experience a loss that god does not know which is hope i think for a few reasons i think one of those reasons is that we were just talking about love and that love requires freedom and that god who is free became man for us and that that was free and that that was a free act of love and that our acts of love through that act of love are also free and then it might be true that grief is love persevering
1: well the crisis suffering is called the passion yes so there we have that inversion of the meaning of the word something that used to be passive now becomes perseverance
0: and it might be said that jesus grief was his love for us persevering
1: yeah and maybe that's why that story really resonates with us at least especially that quote Mm -hmm. because we know that that's true i think that's uh that's a good note to end on (laughs) i think so too (laughs) yeah well thanks for listening everyone thank you for listening You've
0: been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliable podcast or email us at unreliable unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Shusaku Endo's 1966 novel, Silence. Until then, friends, if you forget everything else, everything else we said, please just
1: remember... Sophie! Sophie! Who's doing this to you, Sophie?
0: i know you can see something
1: inside the one part of me that i cannot hide and maybe it's true that nothing is new but i can see so much more in you